Hello, I'm James Holland and this is the Chalk Valley History Hit. I must say it's a great pleasure to introduce this new podcast because Ian Hislop is not only a fine journalist, satirist, writer, editor and broadcaster, he's also extremely funny and one of the genuinely nicest people you could ever wish to meet. He's also been a great friend of the Chalk Valley History Festival and has been down to join the fun most years. He's a regular on Histrionics, our annual history homage to that great British institution, The Panel Show. And he's also talked at some length about various aspects of history, from Victorian do-gooders to First World War satirical newspapers to the olden days. And it is about those glory days and the British obsession with the past that he was talking in this recording. So here he is, in conversation with historian Guy Walters, and every bit as well-informed, learned, interesting, and of course funny as you would expect. I hope you enjoy it. It's great to see you again, Ian Hislop. Hello, uh, Gary. It, it, this is a kind of wheel within a wheel, a mirror within a mirror. Um, Ian came here last year uh, to a talk to us, and maybe many of you here. But while he was here, he was also filming a documentary about our national obsession with the olden days. Um, and obviously, the Chalk Valley History Festival was obviously the perfect place to come in which to uh, film some raw footage of the olden days and reenactors and uh, audiences who are obsessed with the olden days. And now he's back here this year to talk about a documentary about the olden days, which was filmed here, about the olden days, yeah. and about our obsession with the past. <laughs> so we're now going to listen and talk to Ian about our obsession with the past. So yes. I, I think that's a bit... Now, I don't know how many of you saw the, the series. It was on a, a few months ago, wasn't it? And it was, uh, it was fantastic. And, it, it got an audience as nearly as big, big as, as this room. Ten, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and if you, so what we're going to do is I, I'm going I'm to pick up on some of the things you raise and maybe you might, you might tread over some slightly familiar ground or we'll try and move things on a bit because obviously in a TV programme you don't have time to go into the kind of lengths that you may have here today. Um, um, could I, I just say that filming here, it was almost a metaphor for the whole series. Um, I found myself um, in you know, uh, absolutely beautiful green valley, sunny afternoon, surrounded by people dressed up as Napoleonic warriors or First World War, and there was a spitfire flying overhead, and I thought, I am absurdly happy. <laughs> uh, and then obviously I thought, what is wrong with me? Um, and I thought, I have got to make a documentary about this, and my sister always says, uh, my projects are part documentary, part therapy. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I wanted to find out why, in the words of one critic who didn't hugely like my last documentary, said, oh, Ian Hislop, he's just in love with yesterday. Um, And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, And I wanted to examine that and why, in Britain in particular, um, we keep going back to imagined golden periods, heightened um, versions of our own history. Not always history, let's be honest. Um, And I wanted to do two things. One is to suggest that some of this may not have happened at all. Um, And secondly, to suggest why that's not necessarily important. I I, I was going to ask this question at the end, but actually now you've raised your own role within and and your own idea, is it? It struck me watching the series again that um, you are very fond of the past yourself. The the satirist in you, the kind of 
that the evil side of you wants yeah. to ridicule our obsession with foundational myths and things like that. And you sort of come, you hold the knife, you draw a little bit of blood, but you don't kind of slit the throat completely. Do you think that's a fair way of yeah, examining but- your attitude towards why we're all here? Um, yes, because I'm fascinated by what we think happened and why we believe we're told what happened as opposed to what did happen. And then to ask, why is, is this being presented to you in this way? In whose interest is it that you believe this version of the past? But more than that, it's not as though everyone are fools. Why do we want to believe this? And is there a use for heightened and imaginary periods of the past that we use? And I ended up thinking it is incredibly important. One of the things we do in Britain is invent these periods so we can go back to them, say, these are the values we want, and then hit the present over the head with a stick. Um, And that is a way. It's a counterintuitive way. But the second episode's called um, Forward into the Past, which is how we do things in Britain. And one historian said to me, if you want to make a radical new move in Britain, don't tell anyone, just dress it up as old. Um, and the important thing right the way through our history is if you're making any sort of change you must say this is absolutely a return to our old liberties, values and laws and then everyone say terrific, yep Well why don't we talk a little bit about some of these myths or foundational myths so can we start with King Arthur I mean what what, what, it's a great the first programme was an absolutely fantastic almost demolition of of King Arthur Yes Um, and who was the kind of Initial champion was presumably Geoffrey of Monmouth, was it? Yes. I mean, the, the, the first programme is just saying, who do we go to to decide who invented Britain? And, of course, it's King Arthur. I mean, unfortunately, he didn't really exist um, at all. <laughs> um, there are a few references to this sort of 6th-century warrior chieftain, but basically it wasn't until Geoffrey uh, of Monmouth wrote a book about him in 1130-odd that Arthur appeared on the scene. Um, And the brilliant thing about this book is Geoffrey Monmouth was a historian. When he wrote the book, the other historians at the time said, this is rubbish. You know, you have made this stuff up. There was another one called William of Newburgh who said, this is all lies. The stuff about Arthur is rubbish. No one cared. It was a fabulous story. I mean, the whole book of the the history of the kings of Britain is about how Brutus sailed from Troy and um, invented Britain, (laughs) Bruton... And then King Lear's in there, um, and then old King Cole. Everybody's in his book. Um, But the star of the book is King Arthur, um, who is this fantastic British hero. Um, And the important thing about the time it's written is, why did people want to believe this? This is straight after the Norman Conquest. The Normans have arrived as a foreign occupying power... They do not want to hear about a heroic um, <laughs> a member of the Anglo-Saxons who they've just defeated. That's no use to them. A heroic sort of mystic Celt from further back, that'll do fine. So the Normans accept this version of English history. The Anglo-Saxons, meanwhile, who are feeding the pigs and doing the serving for the Normans, read this as this brilliant Celtic warrior who took on these ghastly foreign Vikings who could be a bit Norman. We love this story. So Monmouth ended up with a unifying story that made both bits of a divided England at the time feel happy about themselves. So Arthur was straight in. The problem, my first programme is just saying, we had a king, um, a king called Alfred, who both existed and was an extraordinary king. No-one was interested in him. Not for about 400 years. 
Can, can we, just before we go on to Alfred, let's yep. just, can we just, let's stick with King Arthur? Let's do yep. one king at a time. Yes. And then, uh, a, a lot of people here, we're not that far from Glastonbury. Yep. It's, it, 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 there's a tourism industry based there for centuries. Yes. Entirely based on... Uh, on nonsense. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you can go there today and it's, uh, it's yes. still going. Well, Glastonbury's, I mean, you know, you marvellous. You get to the high street, you can smell patchouli oil. Uh, <laughs> wafts in. Uh, we went filming there. But the, the brilliant thing about Glastonbury is Glastonbury, the abbey, is um, the place where Joseph of Arimathea brought the Holy Grail, <laughs> uh, which was very good of him um, when he came here. And he buried the Holy Grail in the grounds. But would you believe it? No one can remember where. Uh, so you can't find it anymore. Um, Anyway, Glastonbury existed on this sort of myth for years um, and, until they needed a new myth. Um, and there was a, a, a new set of kings in who desperately wanted to be associated with King Arthur. Um, and uh, there was a fire at the abbey um, and it destroyed most of the abbey. And the monks thought, well, we've had it. Um, we need a huge amount of money to rebuild. How on earth are we going to get a huge amount of Money And the answer was, one of them had a vision. Uh, and the vision said, the grave of King Arthur of Camelot and Guinevere is actually in the grounds of Glastonbury Abbey. Unbelievable. Uh, so the monks started digging, and sensibly they dug in the graveyard. Would you believe it? There's a whole load of bones, and it's Arthur. First-hand accounts by other monks saying, it's Arthur and it's Guinevere. Would you believe it? They're all there. Marvellous. So suddenly they had the best uh, relic um, in the whole of Christendom. And they got huge amounts of new sponsorship. Tourists from the entire um, European um, Christendom turned up. And Glastonbury was made. So Arthur is always incredibly useful. Uh, the, the king who, who most wanted to use him was King Henry VIII, um, who, again, um, being a bit of a, a Johnny-come-lately, desperately wanted to be allied to the oldest myth in Britain. So I don't know if, if any of you have been to Winchester to see there's an enormous oak round table, um, which obviously is the round table <laughs> that Arthur and his um, knights um, sat around. Now, Henry VIII... Um, was inviting over uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and he had an Arthurian-themed visit. Um, basically, Britain was a bit on the margins of Europe and a bit backward and a bit Philistine. So what Henry wanted to say was, you may have all this flower of European civilization, but we've got Arthur. Um, and so he took this fabulous round table and uh, just repainted it. Uh, and he put a huge Tudor rose in the middle, just to say, this is me, the Tudors, and he put a portrait of King Arthur in, which is identical to a portrait of himself. I mean, it was a shameless bit of self-promotion, and obviously it was a brilliant party. But from then on, (laughs) Arthur was him. If you remember, Henry's oldest brother was called Arthur in a desperate attempt to get them legitimate. Um, And Henry just went one further and said... No, I'm not just called Arthur, I am Arthur. Yeah, I think, uh, we'll come on to Alfred in a second, but I mean, I think that, I mean, there, there is someone going around today, well, aren't there three present embodiments of King Arthur walking around? We may have some down at the reenactor site, probably. He may well be here. Yeah, I, I thought I saw a King Arthur. 
it's well, good, I'm, it's good I'm, for business, you know. I mean, yeah, no, yeah. no, it's terrific. And I met King Arthur. Um, <laughs> he is, uh, he calls himself Uther Pendragon. Um, and I said, are you King Arthur? And he said, I'm not entirely a, 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 you know, an avatar, a, a rebirth of King Arthur, but I am essentially him. Um, <laughs> and he goes around on a huge motorbike. Um, and he's very interested in campaigning against the bedroom tax. Uh, he's a sort of radical post-Thatcherite Arthur. Um, but uh, he leads this band of druids who are um, rather charming, actually. Um, and they totally fit into the category of reinventors and reinterpreters of Arthur. He is never, he's never gone, really, Arthur. Um, and, I mean, that, I think, is probably the, uh, the most outlandish reinterpretation. But throughout our history, he comes back when we need him. Yeah. Um, and any version um, of Arthur will do, depending on the circumstances. Usually, it's at a time when things get more complex. Um, the greatest, the Mort Data, is right after the Civil War. So Arthur goes from being chivalric and heroic and holy to being confused, murderous, surrounded by disloyal people and incapable um, of keeping his wife faithful, which sort of rang a bell after the Wars of the Roses. Uh, so, again, we get the Arthur that the times want. Uh, which is a theme that runs all the way through your series, is, is this projection of our current desires onto supposed yep. figures of the past... Um, can we move on to King Alfred, which there is a bit more rooted in fact? Yes. But he again, though, despite the fact that maybe you know his feet are slightly more well planted in actual soil, um, that is still a figure who uh, has been used and abused by different uh, through different periods of history. I think it was under Elizabeth I he suddenly became this sort of kind of Superman, really, didn't he? Sort of. Yes. Well, I mean, again, the thing with Arthur is there. Um, there's a lot of magic in it and a lot of mis- mysterious stuff. And to be honest, it's all a bit Catholic. Um, <laughs> and the one thing the Protestant didn't want was sort of um, magic um, and mysticism. So they needed uh, a much more Protestant king. And that was Alfred. Um, they went back to Alfred and found that Alfred translated. I mean, he translated, for the first time, the Bible from Latin into Anglo-Saxon. So for them, suddenly... My God, it's a Protestant king. I mean, you know, 400 years or so out of date, but it doesn't matter. He is our man. So Alfred became the champion of the Protestants. I mean, if you look at the biographies of Alfred, he he went to Rome and met the Pope, and he was a Catholic. But it doesn't matter. He was a Protestant king. Um, So he invented um, translating the Bible into the vernacular. He defeated the Vikings, so he more or less invented the Royal Navy. Um... (laughs) Uh, he invented various laws, and by the time you get to the Victorians, Alfred basically invented Parliament, public schools, and the Empire. Um, uh, and, and, and of course, he's, he's in, encapsulated in rural Britannia, of course. And that yes. was another great, could you talk, talk us through how that became to be this sort of kind of hymn to Alfred and the sea? And... Um, well, again, um, there was a, a crown prince called Frederick, um, who, like many of the Hanoverians, hated his father. Um, so he decided, I have to be... Um, everything my father isn't. Um, And his father was keen on the army, so he became very keen on the navy. Um, His father was sort of conservative, so he became very um, forward-looking in terms of um, the empire and commerce. And he basically set up this mask, which was... um, Music was the the best communication tool of the time. So he had commissioned um, a mask um, to King Alfred, which is a fantastically dreary piece. 
um, largely about bizarre fairies um, and um, uh, nymphs of the sea talking to an ancient bard. But it's got one cracking tune in the middle of it, which is Rule Britannia. Um, and it became, you know, an extraordinary success. Um, and he, uh, yet again, reinvented Alfred as the ultimate tub-thumping, thunk- tub um, uh, rule-the-waves naval monarch. Um, so, again, we tend to get the version of these heroes that we either need at the time or want at the time. And, and that was Alfred then. Uh, of course, then, I mean, we may associate him with the sea, but, of course, he was even associated with um, aerial conflict in the Battle of Britain, wasn't he? Well, absolutely. I mean, we, we do have a habit of going back. I mean, uh, there was a, um, a moment in 1941 when the front page of the Times had a speech by Churchill in which who does Churchill look back to? Britain alone against the Vikings, sorry, against the Nazis. Um, Same story, and he invokes the spirit of Alfred at Athelney. And there's a poem by Chesterton um, about the white horse, um, which was um, uh, carved out of, you know, English chalk by Alfred. Well, it wasn't, obviously. It's about a 1,000 years, the wrong date. But again, (laughs) these things are not important. Um, And I sort of mean that. Uh, And that myth became invoked by Churchill. And I, I always feel, and I said this in the programme, we all just keep referring backwards. So for us, this is a, a Second World War-themed event. That is our present golden age of choice. You go back to that golden age and you find Churchill, who we always invoke, he's invoking Alfred. You're absolutely right. And I think that um, you did anticipate what I was going to ask you next about what is our favourite Oh, right. Olden day, but that's fine. You, you, you're a step ahead of me, and that's absolutely <laughs> fine. I think that we have got ahead of ourselves because I want to go back to the Victorians. Yes. Because last night, I'm sure quite a few of you here were uh, to listen to Simon Heffer talking about the Victorians, but I don't suppose that Heffer may have spoken about how the Victorians were the champions of national myth-making. Yes. And, uh, and I think that you, have, you sort of go to town on them in the, in the series, but I think with a bit of fondness as well, it's fair to say, but they were... Yes, and um, the thing that I, I tried to, to cope with this in the second series is, again, we do a great deal of looking back to the Victorians and saying how extraordinary and energetic and vibrant and forward-looking and um, modern and incredible they were. Um, but when you look at the Victorian area, they spent most of it going on about the Middle Ages. Literally. I mean, the most innovative, technological, modern and successful period of Britain was dominated artistically and um, in terms of thinkers by people going on about how much better it was in the Middle Ages. I mean, there's, um, when the Houses of Parliament burned down, there was a competition um, to redesign the Houses of Parliament. And across the rest of the world, there was cutting-edge new architectural styles. People were putting up the White House. They were putting up these incredible new buildings. The British decided that it had to be built in the international neo-Gothic style. It had to look like a cathedral. So we got Barry and Pugin to to design a building which inside is a church. And I thought, why are we doing this? The most popular book in the entire period is It's Ivanhoe. It's a book about chivalry in which we retell the story of Robin Hood. Why was there this massive focus on the Middle Ages? And I thought, this is extraordinary. Is this just madness? Um, or is there a method in it? And as is so often the case with these sort of um, return to a golden period, 
nobody in the Victorian period believed that the Black Death was a terrific time to be around. Uh, they didn't think rickets were great. Uh, they, what they did was identify what they thought were values that the modern age had lost. So in an incredible period of industrialization, Walter Scott wrote a book about a single knight errant, about Sir Wilfrid of Ivanhoe, a man who believes in chivalry, a man who believes a single individual can influence history, that it is worth having a set of values, that the old community which he represented, um, you know, the old England that he was trying to save, was worth preserving. For reasons that are fairly obvious, um, a massive um, uh, readership decided they wanted to believe that too. Um, and this book, someone said it is the best definition of Englishness written by a Scotsman. Um, typical Walter Scott. But it, it appealed on an absolutely massive basis. So there were literally people restaging medieval jousts. And my favourite story is the Earl of Eglinton decided that what the British aristocracy needed to do in the middle of the 19th century uh, was restage medieval tournaments. So he had a, an event rather like this, in which he had 40 knights in armour, the flower of the English aristocrats, turned up and there were about 100,000 spectators. This is on his estate. And, of course, being Britain, it rained. It rained. <laughs> no one could move. The day was a complete washout. Um, there's only one defining image of it left, which is the Marquess of Londonderry in full armour with an umbrella <laughs> <laughs> over his head, sort of rather worried. Of course, I love this. I just love the idea of it. Um, but the Earl of Eglinton said at the end, he said, yes, it was a bit of a flop, but at least I did my bit for chivalry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they were serious. Uh, and if you look at that, I mean, it's, it's across the, the designers uh, um, against the, the whole medieval revival. But it, it's also coming not just from the right, but from the left. Um, we... If we're talking about Walter Scott, that gives us a nice little opening just to talk a little bit about Scottishness and yes. Scottish tradition. And, of course, uh, what I hadn't realised is that you are Scottish, or yes. sort of Scottish. And I'm half. You're half Scottish. And there's this moment in the programme in which you're at um, some Highland Games and everyone's wearing their tartans. And, and, and again, it's this, what I want to try and capture is this idea that you're, you're quite scathing about it. At the same time, you also uh, you know, you say, actually, I'm actually quite fond of this phony tradition. I quite like it. Yeah. And it, it, is it because it gives you sort of... Even though you know the roots are phony, does it matter? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, one of the, the things I tried to say in, in the programme is that um, what people say this is nostalgia, uh, the British constantly living in the past. I mean, the word nostalgia was actually coined um, for British troops who were constantly going on about how marvellous it was back at home um, to the annoyance of other Europeans. Um, so we do do this, um, but one of the reasons we do it is comfort, one is escapism, which, again, I don't think should be underrated. Um, a way of leaving the present, if it is particularly miserable, is not entirely to be discounted. Um, but the other reason is using what we can find in these periods to make the present better. It is essentially um, a way of um, uh, uh, instilling those values that we want and to take them forward. So that's why my reaction to these things, I think, is always mixed, and it's why the British still do this. In Scotland, you know, I was at the as I kept being told, the Bramar Highland Games, um, which is just wonderfully mad. Uh, it's now full of sort of Eastern Europeans wearing kilts, uh, <laughs> throwing cabers a hell of a long way. I mean, I tell you, those guys, they're, they're big. Um, 
And you don't just have one bagpipe band, you have massed bagpipe bands. You've never seen so many bagpipes. Um, and they march in, and there's this swirl of tartan, and it's... I felt at one point I was, I was on a biscuit tin. Um, <laughs> but I absolutely loved it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I had to work out what it is um, that I thought was valuable. And then you, you do end up again with Walter Scott. I mean, if he invented England, more or less, he invented Merry England, then he certainly invented Scotland. Um, and, it's, again, it's one novel, um, which is Waverley, uh, which is, again, nobody reads Scott anymore, but it was the most influential novel of its time, particularly north of the border. The whole Highland tourist industry, the fact that people go there, the romance of Scotland, it is pretty much entirely Scott. And um, if I can tell... I think the defining moment of Walter Scott is... Um, Waverley, sorry. Waverley's about the Jacobite revolution. So it's a book that's about a pretty nasty rebellion that's happened in Britain um, within living memory. Um, and his story is about an Englishman, Captain Waverley, who goes up to the Highlands, falls in love with the beautiful flora, falls in love with the Jacobite cause loves the idea of Scotland, but by the end of the novel has realised that the only really way forward for these two countries is to come together in the Union and vote against Alex Salmond. Uh, <laughs> no. That was always going to get a big clap. Um, he didn't actually put that bit in. Uh, you just, but it's more or less what it's about. And it, it is about, um, for him again, um, both deconstructing and remaking a myth is about unity. I mean, it's about finding a way to go forward. And his coup was... Um, the, the king never in British history visits Scotland unless they can possibly avoid it. Um, up to when Walter Scott got George II... Um, uh, sorry, George IV, to go to Scotland in 1822. And he decided that what had to happen that evening was a Highland ball. Um, now... Everybody was told, it's a Highland ball, you have to turn up in Highland dress. Now, you know, the, the great and good of Edinburgh um, didn't have Highland dress. Uh, they weren't related to anyone in the Highlands who they thought were a bunch of thieves and renegades. Uh, but Walter Scott had decided the romance of uh, the Highlands was what would happen. And tartan manufacturers in Scotland invented over 140 tartans that week. Uh, <laughs> They had never had such good business. Absolutely fantastic. Everybody suddenly was related to one of the clans, probably one of the older ones. Um, and the king himself, this is 70 years after a, a very violent rebellion, the king turned up, this slightly ridiculous sort of Hanoverian, dressed as the clan chief of chiefs. And he... Because he was a very, very fat man... Um, he'd ordered over 100 yards of a bright red tartan. Um, and he'd put it all round himself. But because he was very vain, he had a very, very short kilt. Um, and uh, one of the duchesses said um, it was nice that the king um, had showed so much of himself because he wasn't in Scotland for very long. Um, and the whole effect was like a giant exploding tomato. Uh, he had pink tights, uh, this vast sort of cornucopia of tartan. Um, and the event described by everyone, I thought, was absolutely classic British. It was utterly ridiculous. Everybody laughed, 
and a huge success, and it became compulsory from then on. <laughs> Let, let's move away from Scotland, if yep. that's all right. Uh, the, I'd, like to, I'd like to go uh, and talk about landscape in the countryside, yep. and you talk a lot about that. And I think, that obviously, it's a natural reaction to industrialisation is this sort of uh, mid-Victorian, late-Victorian obsession with pastoralism. Yep. And that is particularly expressed by William Morris. And I remember you, you go to his house and say, this is a man who literally wants to live in the past. Yes. I mean, if anyone could be accused of living in the past, he built a house, um, again, in the 19th century, based on a 13th century model. Um, this is the man who was a, a small boy dressed up in suits of medieval armour and rode through Epping Forest looking for ancient churches to visit. Um, he literally wanted to live in the past. And for a lot of um, Victorians, the countryside was the physical embodiment of the olden days. It was like a sort of a green doorway to a simpler, better, um, more wholesome, more moral place. And that is what the countryside became. It hadn't always been that. You know, in a lot of British history, the countryside was this place full of woods and bears and wolves that were going to kill you. Um, the best thing to do was burn it down. Um, the turning point um, was I, I actually opened a programme with the 1851 census. I know how to grab an audience. <laughs> um, but it was very important, because this is the tipping point. It's, it's the moment in history where, according to the census, more people live in towns than live in the countryside. And that's the first time it had happened in any major industrial power. And it was in Britain. There were about 8.9 in both. But it had just tipped over. And essentially, from then on, the countryside is a place where we have been exiled from. It's what used to be home. And it immediately becomes a place of nostalgia. And again, if you look at what's fantastically popular in art, that's why I go on about the novels of Scott, is um, the paintings of a man called Burkitt Foster, who basically did chocolate box. Um, and the reason people like chocolate box pictures of villages where he's stripped out all the roads and taken all the machinery out. and I mean, he was doing it then. The, the reason people like this is not because they're stupid. Um, it's the reason people like this, because it represents something they feel they've lost. Um, and he was quite literally the most famous painter for 50 years. Well, I mean, the, the Queen wanted to buy... Uh, Victoria yep. wanted to buy one of his works, and, and someone else had, had pipped her to the post, didn't they? I think. Absolutely, and she couldn't believe that he wouldn't just give it to her. <laughs> uh, but he was very, very commercial, Burkitt Foster, and he'd got a very good price for it. But uh, I, I was just saying, this is an imagined countryside. This wasn't yep. a countryside that actually ever really existed. The countryside had always been a... It wasn't this idealised place with sort of, you know, healthy young infants running around in beautiful countryside. I mean, it was, it was a dump half the time. And, yes, and, and um, you know... Uh, there was an article in Punch which said that you know, the, that, the average thatched cottage was in fact a rural slum um, and the way Burkitt Foster painted it um, made you forget um, that all that existed so it was a fantasy um, but what it expressed was, and you can see this at the end of the period where he's very very popular, is the conservation movement starts up and people start attempting to make the countryside better <laughs> Um, having noticed that their vision of it isn't true. So, yet again, it's one of those examples where um, the fact that it's not true is interesting, but it's not the whole story. Absolutely, and so, but actually then the, the myth becomes reality because then you have societies and ultimately things yep. like the National Trust which actually seek to preserve something that actually wasn't necessarily there in the way that they want it to be. So when you 
look around at some National Trust property today, it's almost an idealised version yep. of what that property may have been. Well, there's a fantastic... I ended the series with this. There's a fantastic place called Monsal um, Viaduct, um, which is in Derbyshire in the Peak District. And it's this beautiful ancient valley with a viaduct running through the middle of it where a train comes along. And when they built it, it's sort of 1870-odd, uh, John Ruskin said, this is an absolute disgrace. Um, you know, England has totally failed. This is a valley full of ancient gods, beautiful pathways. What are we doing? We have wantonly destroyed this. Anyway, a couple of years ago, um, the train line was removed. The viaduct is there. And they said, oh, we'll knock the viaduct down. Oh, no, not in Britain. Huge society formed. Keep the viaduct. <laughs> it's incredibly beautiful. This is part of our landscape. Um, and I thought, that really is us. Uh, and it is very, very beautiful, the viaduct, as it cuts through and you put a proper steam train on it and it looks absolutely wonderful. You know, this hideous modern invention that Ruskin saw, we think, fabulous. Um, so the olden days are sort of what we make them. I wonder whether we'll have some sort of wind turbine preservation societies in 50 years' time. I mean, it's, that's the equivalent, isn't it, really? Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a big fracking museum. LAUGHTER uh, We'll all wander around going, oh, yes, fracking. Oh, and, and a fracking festival. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably Glastonbury, actually. But, uh, <laughs> the, the, I, I also, it's, but this idea of uh, pastoralism is also not just rooted in paintings. It's also in, in, in dance and, yep. and things like that. And I, you have this great sequence of um, uh, uh, a woman called Daisy Daking. Mm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about her? Because she's a, she's a really great figure. Well, yes, I mean, she... Um, she was called Daisy Daking, and she was part of the revival of English folk music, which was um, led by Cecil Sharp. It was part of an, that entire movement, thinking we are losing something. Industrialism is taking away the soul of this country, and we must try and preserve what's left. And Cecil Sharp um, went round collecting folk songs. Again, he was absolutely one of those extraordinary... Um, Edwardian figures who would turn up in a village with his friend the clergyman and say, ''Has anyone got any songs?'' Um, and people would turn up and sing him old songs about pumpkins and willows, and he'd write them all down. Um, but, again, what we forget is that the folk movement was incredibly popular. I mean, it literally swept through Britain. Fantastically popular. Um, folk songs were put on the school curriculum. All school children had to learn folk songs, and did up till about the 70s. I'm sure many of you here had to sing There Was a Tailor Had a Mouse, Idlum Cum Feedle. <laughs> Keep, keep going, keep yeah. going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they lived together in one house. Uh, fabulous. Anyway, that was English folk songs. Slightly ridiculous, but the movement was there. But Daisy Dakin I absolutely love, because in the middle of the First World War, in 1917, Daisy Dakin, who'd led a revival in English folk dance, decided that what troops needed on the Western Front as part of their rehabilitation process was Morris dancing. Um, and uh, she went out to France and there was much um, a ribald comment uh, in the newspapers and um, people thought, you know, this is absolutely ludicrous. You know, these people have got shell shock. Um, what are they going to do? Anyway, Daisy Daking, who was about this high, um, fantastically charismatic, went out there and started doing uh, Morris dancing to um, British um, troops who were... Um, either shell-shocked or uh, uh, wounded. And the amazing thing about this story is it should have been ridiculous. But what she did is she got them in a brass 
I mean, sorry, in a, a corrugated iron hangers, and told them to imagine everything was green. Um, to imagine they were in the countryside at home and that they were far away and to start dancing. And her advice was, um, get the Scots up first, they like dancing. Um, <laughs> said, then the colonials, Australians, New Zealanders, they've got the inhibitions, get them up. Um, by the end, even the English will dance. Um, and she started this programme, and by the end of it, she was putting through about 100 people a day. And I found the testimonials um, to what she'd achieved from the soldiers at the time. And like so many of these stories, it is both utterly ridiculous and fantastically moving. And by the end of it, the commander-in-chief at one of these retired bases says, Miss Dakin has removed the grey from our faces. Well, Amazing. Well, you can't say fairer than that. No. I, I, now, I mean, you, do, you briefly touched on just then this idea that... Um, on, I mean, the, the idea of a countryside and an idealised Britain... Yep. Uh, was even used as a way of recruiting soldiers to the First World War and yep. the landscape. Um, and and it, it's extraordinary to think that presumably most soldiers came from an urban background, yep. yet they were encouraged to feel that they were fighting for a kind of pastoral yep. idol that may not have existed. Well, you, again, on, not only on recruiting posters, but on sort of um, uh, uh, matchboxes and super... You needed an image that people could believe in. And the thing about a, an unsullied pastoral landscape, if you're looking out at um, no man's land is that gives you a very, very strong visual idea of a set of values incorporated in a picture. And that's where the pastoral comes in. Um, and the fact that, you know, they were a pals battalion from Birmingham or there's a fantastic poster of a Highland regiment looking out over what's quite clearly Sussex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> lovely thatched roofs. Uh, but again, it's what they needed to believe can we take us a step back before we start asking some questions and just to sort of try and wrap up my bit of it is um, I think you say that we can say that this phrase olden days can be seen as a pejorative term yep. and it's kind of we say oh, it's, it's a kind of naive term that young children use oh it's back in the olden days yep. and it's a kind of all rubbish but it can be retrograde yet at the same time that power of nostalgia it's very easy to dismiss and poo poo but at the same time as you say no it, it is a force for good um, could you sort of expand on that yes, a little bit yes I mean I, I think um, what was interesting in, in um, the reaction to the industrial period is, I touched on this earlier, it wasn't just fogies and nostalgics and reactionaries saying we want to go back to the olden days because it was really great then and we don't want anything to change. You looked at people like the Luddites, um, which was basically a movement, a, a working class movement of, of um, uh, sort of early flying pickets, really, um, going around smashing up machinery. Um, but they thought they were Robin Hood. Um, they basically described themselves as a group of medieval outlaws. And what they wanted was some respect for labour, some respect for what they did. And so their um, motivation for going backwards was to say, can we not have a period where there is some dignity in labour, where there are some b um, bonds between employer and employee above um, just trying to exploit them or throw them out of work? And William Morris was the same. I mean, he was a socialist. He set up a number of socialist organisations. And his idea of a socialist revolution... He wrote a book called News From Nowhere, which is basically an outline of a, a Marxist revolution taking place in Britain and a new age emerging. And it's one of the first science fiction books. But the, the frontispiece to his book is 
oh, it's a thatched cottage. <laughs> you think it should be a skyscraper or a robot. Uh, no, no, that's not the vision of the future. Um, but it was a vision in which, um, as he put it, I mean, William Morris said quite clearly, the overriding passion of my life has been to create beautiful objects and to hate the modern civilization. Uh, and what he hated about it was he felt it had made things less human. Um, and going back to the past, for him and for a lot of thinkers then, I mean, this is on both sides, and you can follow this all the way through. It's not just, oh, this is cosy, this is the world of... Someone once said, Britain wants to be a tea towel. Uh, you know, one huge commemorative tea towel for everything. Um, it's better than that. It is a chance to use the values of the past and then use them to make the present better. Do you think, one final question for me, do you think that this um, is a specifically British thing? Do you not think that the French also have events like this or the Americans or, um, other, or the Colombians? I don't know. I mean, I, I just wonder whether... It, it's not past entirely... is linked together, isn't it? And it is, but I mean, I, I genuinely think the British do this much, much more. And it is, it is partly to do with a, a history which we believe to be one long ladybird uninterrupted flow. Um, it isn't, but it's presented that way, and we have avoided the worst of those year zero revolutions. And that's what you get when you don't have a past that you can reimagine. You have, let's start from nothing, let's reinvent it all, and this is where Burke comes in, which I did quite a lot of um, as a philosopher. You start finding that the revolution um, that you thought you wanted, you don't actually want at all. Um, and Burke and his thinkers said that the word revolution didn't mean violent change. It meant the wheel coming back again to the place where it should be. Thank you very much indeed. That was fantastic. Now, I... A little pre-clap, a little pre-clap. Now, now, now Ian is very happy to answer questions. I can't um, believe it's the, 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 raining the, the, just it, at that it's point. It's a little bit wet. It's a little bit wet, so we might have to stay in here for a little bit longer. Um, the request is, please, can we try and keep them on topic rather than general questions about Ian's other lives, if that's possible? Um, so if you have any questions about Ian or any of his sort of historical programmes, they're very, very welcome indeed. And, uh, and if you need to ask a question, put your hand up as you are over there, sir. And then wait till you've got the microphone in your hand. And also, if you can stand up as well when you ask the question, be fantastic. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I'm a school teacher here, actually in England. I find the fascination uh, with uh, various British historical events very impressive, um, considering that from my home country we have very little history in comparison. My question to you is, if you were to design a curriculum, uh, what would be the highlights that you'd want us to teach? Whoa. Whoa. Great. <laughs> Wow. You're saved, uh, you're saved by the way. Well, I, I would literally want you to teach um, a continuous British history that is aware um, of both the myth-making and the positive bits in it. So rather than like my children who did the Aztecs, the Victorians, the Nazis, the Aztecs, the Victorians, the Nazis, the Nazis again, and then the Victorians, um, something that linked... <laughs> the story. Can you hear me at all? Yeah. So loud. That, that's what I would like you to think. But um, genuinely, I mean, you know what the highlights are, um, and you know what we make of it 
and what is actually um, useful from it. I mean, I do love the Victorians, but I would, I would teach the bonkers ones rather than the repeal of the Corn Laws. Um, can you actually hear us? Yeah, OK, good. Um, we can't hear anything here. Yeah. Um, there was another question somewhere over there as well. Um, thank you, yes. And again, if you... If you and then there are more questions there. Um, oh, OK. I, I think the lady in blue is going to go first. Sorry, yeah. Yes, madam. Hello, can you hear me? No. Oh. <laughs> it's so loud. I'll tell you what, she could come up and ask yeah, it. Yeah, why don't you come, come up? Come up and ask it. And then we'll... we'll um... It's incredibly loud. Thank you. Shall I use your microphone on this one? No, you just ask us in person and I'll say it again. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Do, do you think that our current new citizens need to be to know our foundation needs yeah. Are you right? Yeah. Repeating that yeah. back. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully you'll be able to hear Ian repeat the question to himself. Um, the lady's talking about there's been a lot of talk about British values um, in the last month or so. She's saying, do you think we need to have a historical? Um, teaching of British values so that people know where they come from. Um, my answer would be absolutely, so that you know when people are trying to pull the wool over your eyes um, in terms of defining what they think British values are and then an actual historical basis of what those values are supposed to be. And she mentioned, I hope I've got this right, specifically the Victorians and the values they were looking for in, for example, the Middle Ages, were of, if you ask Pugin, what is the point of designing this amazing building? And he said, the point is to make our legislators look up and be more moral. He wanted them to be more public-spirited, more charitable, and to think more about um, uh, the people outside the walls in terms of charity um, through government than they did about what was inside. So even at its most sort of bonkers neo-baroque, uh, there was a moral purpose to this going backwards. And those, I think, were British values that few of us would have any problem with. Um, there was another question for the gentleman in the black T-shirt here. Do you want to stand up? Thank you. I, I think it's gone down a bit now. Yes. It's gone down. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. What was it? Uh, hello, sir. Um, hello. Yes. Oh. Uh, this, this thing about um, this thing about this, this uh, British thing, and you touched briefly on that uh, other countries might have it. I mean, yep. occasionally there have been things where other countries have shown. I mean, for example, Napoleon uh, like uh, tried to bring like, say, to the Roman emperors yep. even in a darker, even darker phase, Mussolini. I mean, um, is it so? So, so there's this whole. Do you think there is this? Um, is there is this thing between? It's, it's just this thing that very specific to Britain or is it the other things well, you, can you, do it as... The, the question mentions, you know, going back to Rome um, which again, that is fairly prevalent, you know um, leaders tend um, to imagine they're Roman emperors uh, Napoleon did it and had huge um, marble statues of himself made, Mussolini 
quite obviously was trying to recreate Rome. But all I'm saying is, in those cases, those are fairly specific one-offs. What you notice in Britain is we've been doing it since just after we came out of the Dark Ages, um, which is a very, very long time to, to be saying we have a continuous thread uh, which dates back to this foundation myth. Um, so I'm saying... <laughs> you're quite right. Other countries do do it. I, I'm just saying it's the extent to which we do it and the, the uses to which we put it. Excellent. Is that, is that a question from you? Yeah. Ah, what did the Romans do for us? I did them four times. What effect on British values? Yeah. That's the question from the, the lady in the front. You did the Romans four times? Yeah. It's been at my school. There was nothing else. Uh, what effect did they have on British values? Um, well, particularly in the, the Victorian era, um, empires imagine um, that they are the Roman Empire, except better. Um, and um, in Britain, uh, a lot of those sort of uh, values of um, fortitude, long-suffering, um, stiff upper lip, I made a whole programme about it, um, uh, came from a, a specific reading of classic texts, particularly Virgil. Um, so, uh, rule of law, um, value of debate, all of that stuff, um, you can say, uh, came from a Roman model. The Victorians uh, both claimed that and then said, we have our own native tradition from Alfred. Um, Alfred had a Witanagamut uh, type Anglo-Saxon parliamentary tradition, which the Victorians then said was unlike the Senate and a much better model, because it was more locally based. Um, so we had our own parliamentary tradition. Um, so um, people both wanted to hark back to a classical model and also say the problem about the classics is they're full of Italians um, <laughs> and we need our own. Um, so that's where Alfred came in. Are there any more questions? Uh, there are, okay, there, there are two here and there are two over there. So you two and then you two over there. Brilliant, thank you. Yes, madam. They say that history is written by the victors. Yes. Would we serve children better if rather than teaching it as this is what happened, we taught them that it was in fact propaganda? Well, some of it's propaganda um, and some of it isn't. Um, uh, so who decides? Well, that's what you offer. I mean, that's what I was attempting to do in this, to say, here are the stories. Um, uh, say, uh, uh, King Alfred, if you want a foundation myth, he established um, the entity that became England. That is true. Um, he didn't burn any cakes. Uh, that was a useful later addition. Um, so, uh, and uh, the story of King Alfred is written by the winners in terms of um, the Protestant ascendancy, but also later by the losers who wanted to use him for their purposes too. So it's quite simple, um, I think, as an approach to say history is always written by the victors, not always. There was another question in the front row, and then we'll do two over there. And you make the case for the fact that we've always had this sort of backward-looking uh, nature, um, and the other thing that some would say about the British is the, the, the idiosyncrasy of their sense of humour, with possibly wearing both your hats as a historian and as, as a, and as a satirist. Do you see a link between those two 
characteristics or how does our backward-lookingness affect our sense of humour or mould it? Well, I mean, I think in all the stories that I've found... Sorry, you're talking about having a sense of humour and, and looking backwards. Um, the, the two things, are they both national tray? And I would say they both are. But um, they link in the fact that even those of us who find elements of historical revisionism most amusing um, are quite attracted to them. Uh, Alan Bennett wrote a fantastic passage once about how he was sitting trying to write a play and the trooping of the colour um, was going on outside his window. And he said, I found I was both simultaneously irritated and I had a lump in my throat. <laughs> um, which, again, I think is a, is a classic Bennett line and one that um, does say quite a lot about our reaction. I mean, I just love these stories. I would like to have been at the ball. I would like to have seen the king dressed up um, in, in the purple. I mean, he actually called the Tartan Royal Stuart, which was the clan that was trying to defeat him. <laughs> I mean, no sense of irony allows you to cope with how odd English history is. Um, uh, there were, yeah, the gentleman here, just his hand up, and then the gentleman behind the blue shirt after that. Yeah, hello. Uh, I was just wanting, this has all been uh, beautifully uh, bucolic, uh, but when you look back to uh, incidents like uh, Culloden, the massacre at Amritsar, the Opium Wars, the wiping out of all the natives of Tasmania, yeah. and you can go on and on and on, how do you reconcile that with this very comfortable business, uh, vision of Britishness? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you don't take on uh, the elements of our history that are shameful and embarrassing. Um, you do. But again, there's very little... Um, historical revisionism about those incidents. They're either ignored or presented in full. Um, the interesting thing about, the only one I can think of there, of Culloden, is that became part of a, a romanticised vision of Highland nobility. Um, whereas, in fact, it was um, uh, a very bloody rebellion, and in fact, with elements of a civil war, but um, you sound like you know as much about it as I do, um, uh, which didn't reflect well on either side or either country. Um, so Scott's, um, he called his book 60 Years On, and his basic theme there was to try and say, we have moved on from this, and we can put this in a safe category, i.e., this will become the olden days that doesn't come and bite us. Um, and after 70 years, that was quite quick. Someone once said, you know, the... Um, it was like the king appearing as a, a clan chieftain is a bit like the American president turning up dressed as a Viet Cong general, saying, hi, it's party time. Uh, would everyone like to turn up in uh, Viet outfits? I mean, there, there are there, a few there people out there who probably do that. Um, You've got one, haven't you? Yeah, no. But, I mean, I, I don't want to do um, comfortable revisionism. Everything's been glorious in the whole time. That was not the point of it at all. Um, but it was to try and say, um, we know what the point of periods of blackness and failure is. You can learn from them. It is obvious what has gone wrong. But I was trying to say, why do we find you know, a period here, say this was golden, why do we do that? Um, and most of the people doing it are... I mean, there's great talk on Disraeli earlier, but, I mean, again, he wrote um, his books. He was another bonkers medievalist. He lived in a house and pretended it was... 11th century, and he'd always lived there. Um, and uh, he wrote books about um, uh, return to medieval values. You know, he set up 
this party called Young England, which was basically about going back to old England. Um, a lot of them do it, but the fact that he led the great reforming administration, which cleared the slums um, and took on these reforms, was because he had a very odd sense of what a more moral England should look like. Um, so I'm not genuinely not trying to avoid, um, you know, the moments of shame. The gentleman in the blue uh, check shirt. Um. All oh, right, sorry. Uh, right, so we learnt today that uh, this is 100 years to the day since Crown Prince uh, Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo, but I've got an eerie feeling that the 70th anniversary of D-Day will, will trump anything that we do to do with the First World War. That's just my personal view. But uh, here we are in 2014. You mentioned that the Second World War earlier, but what myths or golden periods are we being deliberately peddled now, and crucially, why? Um, well... I think there is a, um, there's a 1950s golden era um, that's beginning to be um, crystallised about um, uh, uh, um, a golden era of... Again, it's, people always go backwards when they're unsure about the present. Um, it's when you think periods of... I'm sorry, I thought I'm being heckled. Uh, <laughs> quite rightly. It's... Um, Periods of, of very rapid social change or rapid industrialisation or rapid change um, of conditions in the workplace. And I think we're probably in one now in which your generation, if I can put it, aren't sure where the jobs are, they aren't sure where prosperity lies, if it's there at all. Um, and there is a tendency to go backwards and saying, well, the thing we used to do right was we had... You could leave your door open and we had cohesive communities and people had... Um, a way of living, which is partly not true, um, but partly, as, as I was trying to say these golden periods, partly there was an element of truth in it which it's worth finding out where it was and seeing whether that can be usefully reapplied. Um, so I think we're doing that. I mean, the, the Second World War, I mean, um, Guy was pointing out earlier, that is the period that most people now think at least we knew what we were doing we were doing something right. People felt they knew um, what they're doing. And there's a slight sense of envy, I think, amongst our generation. Is I look back on them. I mean, there's. I'll be mean, just personal for a minute. I mean, I can see myself doing it. I mean, there's an absolutely charming old lady who lives next door to me um, in London, and she. I said, "Did you see the D-Day things?" And she said, "Oh yes, I went down there, and those young men they did so much, and I just feel so guilty. We did so little." Um, and then she told me she was at Bletchley. Uh, and I said, no, no, you didn't do little. You did quite a lot, really. Um, and again, I feel a sense of envy at their humility, but also their sense of purpose. Um, I think that's a nice place to end it, Ian. Okay. Thank you very much. We've got 20 seconds left. So thank you once again for coming here to talk to a festival which you've both filmed and now spoken at at least three times. So anyway. I hope we can welcome you back again. And if we can just give them a, a huge hand. Thank you so much. <laughs>